Well, this afternoon we are starting to get back into the Gospel of Matthew, where we broke off uh, just before Easter, two or three weeks ago. And I want to direct our thoughts this afternoon to Matthew chapter 14 that Jody just read to us. We're just going to look at this first section, verses 1 to 12. In a way, the timing of Easter has kind of been in our favour because we, we've, we've already seen that there are essentially five blocks in Matthew and we finished the last block just before Easter. And where we're beginning today is basically the beginning of a fourth section uh, in Matthew that stretches from chapter 14 to the end of chapter 18. Uh, these different blocks in Matthew all seem to have coherent themes. And we'll discover more about that as we work our way through these chapters. Hello. Over, over the next few months. Um, but for today, this, this passage at the beginning of Matthew stands out because it's so shocking and gruesome. Here we have a defenseless but good man, John the Baptist, confronting a powerful but gross man, Herod, and it ends with John's severed head being presented on a platter to Herod's wife at his drunken birthday party. So the question that I want us to think about today um, is a really simple one. Why? <laughs> Why? Why does Matthew include this at all in his gospel? Why does Matthew write in a gospel, right in the middle of a gospel? There's 28 chapters in Matthew. This is right smack bang in the middle. Why does Matthew in a gospel that is so clearly all about Jesus feel the need to digress and tell us why and how John the Baptist was executed? I want to offer three possible answers to that question in the hope that we'll see that although this passage is not directly about Jesus, in actual fact, it is all about Jesus. We'll be fairly quick with the first two, and then we'll be a little longer with the third as we try and draw some conclusions from these verses here. First of all, I want to suggest that Matthew here tells us about John partly because he's continuing to highlight the various different human responses that people had to Jesus. The Gospels are written to reveal the true identity of Jesus as the Son of God in human flesh, the promised Messiah, the true King, the Saviour of sinners, as we've been singing, the restorer of the broken, the bringer of light into the darkness, the bringer of love into the violence and hate that there so often is in this world, the bringer of truth into the lies and deception, the bringer of meaning into the apparent meaninglessness, and ultimately the bringer of life and hope 
into death and despair. This is the great burden of the gospel writers. They want you, they want us, they want everyone who's reading their gospels to see who Jesus really is. And so the gospels are written in such a way that all the way through, lurking under the service, there's there's an implied question. Who is this man? Who is who is he? Who is this man, Jesus? Now, we've already seen, as Matthew writes, some of the responses that people had to Jesus. We've seen already something of the fierce pride that the religious leaders had towards Jesus. It escalates through the Gospel of Matthew and culminates in them murdering him. Jesus seems to have challenged the religious establishment of his day and provoked them to such an extent that they wanted to kill him. Then, if you've got your Bible open here, if you can remember before Easter, we've had a few big sleeps since then. Uh, I think it was Ben, wasn't it, who looked at this last passage. And um, you'll see there a different response. The familiarity of people who'd grown up with Jesus, bred a kind of contempt and apathy. Look at the question at the end of chapter 13 and verse 54. Matthew says, coming to his hometown, his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. And their question was, where did this man get this wisdom? And these miraculous powers, they asked, isn't he just the carpenter's son? This is the guy we've grown up with who worked in his dad's carpenter's shop. Now, sometimes when someone from maybe a small village makes it big, everyone's really proud that they've made it big. It seems in Jesus' case that the people he'd grown up with were offended by him. They weren't proud. They, they couldn't get past the fact that he was ordinary. He was one of them. In, in a sense, they were offended because he was too much like them. It's actually part of his glory. And anyway, now Matthew here in chapter 14 introduces us to Herod and shows uh, another, a further response to the Lord Jesus. Now, Herod's family was a very powerful ruling dynasty. Loosely brought up as Jews, they ruled over the Jews on behalf of the Romans. Herod the Great had been the first, and that's the Herod who appears in the Christmas story because he tried to kill Jesus. And the wise men seem to have outfoxed him and went home a different way. Uh, Matthew tells us about that at the beginning of his gospel. When Herod the Great died, the land was divided up between some of his sons. And this particular son here in Matthew chapter 14 was called Herod Antipas. That's not an Italian starter. Um. He, he, didn't have, he didn't technically have the title king. He, he wanted it, for sure. 
but he was crowned tetrarch. A tetrarch was like a ruler of a quarter. So the land was divided up, and he became one of the tetrarchs, and he actually ruled over the region of Galilee, which is where Jesus, he, he reigned for over 40 years, actually for most of Jesus' life. It's no surprise then that Herod begins to hear reports of Jesus because Galilee is his patch. This is the area that he rules over. And his response to Jesus is very interesting. In verse 2, we're told that Herod spoke with his attendants. I was very intrigued to find that, that, that word, the word that just, just translated attendance there could literally mean boys. He, he said to his boys, it, it, I don't know if this is a little naughty, but it made me think that Herod sounded a little bit like a Yorkshireman. Hey, lads, 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 you know this Jesus that we're hearing about. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is John the Baptist come back to life. You can imagine him saying this in a Yorkshire accent. Herod is latching on to a kind of popular superstitious opinion here. So Herod's response is not so much the stubborn pride of the religious leaders or the apathy of Jesus' neighbours, but the superstition of a wicked king that, that at least in part seems fueled by a guilty conscience. If this were a film... It would be a very short film, just verses 1 and 2. Because essentially, verses 3 to 12 are essentially a flashback to explain why Herod might have had this response. His superstitious fear of Jesus was driven by his recent past crime. Because Matthew tells us that it was actually Herod himself who had murdered John the Baptist. What he thought was done and dusted still continued to haunt him and led Herod to wonder whether this Jesus, the miracle worker that he was hearing about, was actually God sending John back to him and that justice was going to catch up with him after the terrible thing that he'd done. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, to see Matthew painting these different human pictures of different responses to the Lord Jesus. And in a sense, what Matthew's doing, without actually coming out and saying it, he's he's confronting all of us as readers. He's asking us the same question. Who is Jesus? He's asking all of us, what about you? What do you think who, 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 who is Jesus? He's compelling us to face the same question for ourselves. Who do you think Jesus is? Will you believe in him? And will you gladly give your all to him? Or are you misunderstanding or dismissing or resisting or fearing or even running away 
from him. A second reason why I think Matthew includes this seemingly random digression in his gospel is that Matthew is also continuing to foreshadow the inevitable death of Jesus himself. This passage is all about John, but I think one of the reasons that Matthew includes this passage is because this is how it will be in this world for Jesus too. There's a dark shadow gathering over Jesus, and what happens to John here is a prelude to what is going to happen to Jesus too. And I think there's at least a couple of reasons that we can know that. First of all, Matthew himself tells us a bit later on that this is exactly how Jesus himself interpreted John's death. You you can turn with me if you've got your Bible there. Just skip a few pages on to chapter 17. I don't want to steal whoever preaches from this passage in a few weeks, but... Later on, Jesus is coming down a mountain with some of his disciples and the disciples ask him in Matthew chapter 17, this is in verse 10, they ask him a question, why then do the teachers of the law tell us that Elijah must come first? That is, before the Messiah shows up. Why, why do they tell us that Elijah comes first and then the Christ? And in verse 11, Jesus replies, I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but they've done to him everything they wished. And in the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Verse 13 says, then the disciples understood that Jesus was talking to them about John the Baptist. It's there in that little phrase, in the same way. Jesus uses John's death to prepare his disciples for his own death. Jesus is saying to them as they come down the mountain, you remember what happened to John? The same thing is going to happen to me. These guys are going to do the same to me that they did to him. But secondly... I think another reason we can know that this is a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus is that Matthew himself seems to describe John's death in a way that deliberately points us to the death of Jesus. Let me, um, let me try and show you what I mean. Matthew tells us in verse 5 that Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people. And you may know that later on, Matthew tells us exactly the same thing happens with Jesus. You can read in chapter 21 and chapter 26 that the Pharisees and the chief priests, they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowd because they held that Jesus was a prophet. Matthew also tells us here that Herod had John arrested and bound in verse 3. So was Jesus. Matthew says exactly the same about Jesus. He too was arrested and bound. It's also the case here that John was reluctantly condemned to death 
by a cowardly king under pressure from other people. Does that remind you of anything? Jesus too was handed over to be crucified by Pilate who washed his hands and said it's nothing to do with me because he was under pressure to condemn him to death even though he knew he was innocent. And then after John's death, we're told by Matthew that John's disciples came and bravely, courageously came to Herod and said, can we please have his body so that we can give him a proper burial? Which is exactly what happens later to Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. So although this passage is all about John, it seems that Matthew includes it and deliberately describes it in a way that foreshadows what is coming. And surely the point is, isn't this world a brutal place sometimes? This world is capable of unjustly murdering righteous, good men. It beheaded John and would crucify Jesus. What we're seeing here then in Matthew's gospel, unfolding as Matthew writes, is the increasing awareness that Jesus is the true king alongside the dawning realisation that he is deliberately and knowingly heading to the cross. Finally then, and thirdly, and we'll spend a little longer on this, Matthew, I think, includes this little digression about John the Baptist to highlight the superior goodness of the Lord Jesus. So I want to just approach this in two ways and unpack this by getting into the story and comparing Jesus, first of all, to Herod and then comparing him to John to see how Jesus is superior to both of them. Does that make sense? And we'll finish with this. So first of all, Jesus is a truer and better king. Herod was a terrible king. The whole Herodic dynasty and family was a sordid mess, actually. And even though Herod wasn't technically a king, he was in practice a kind of king of the Jews. And perhaps this idea is behind, this is maybe why John the Baptist felt the need to publicly denounce Herod. John's job, of course, John's mission from God was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. And it's almost as if John the Baptist stands up in the desert and he begins to preach and he says to people, see Herod, this is not what the king of the Jews should look like. And according to verse 4, John didn't say it once, but had been constantly and publicly calling Herod out for his terrible behaviour. Verse 4 says that John had been saying to him all along, it's almost like it's incessant and relentless, John's preaching against King Herod. In verse 3, 
Matthew tells us that Herod had thrown John into prison because of his wife, Herodias. Why, why, does, why, why, why does John the Baptist want to call out Herod for this? Well, two, two reasons. First of all, that it was morally wrong. And, and, and secondly, it was politically explosive. When Herod first became the tetrarch or the ruler of the region of Galilee, he'd married another woman. We don't know her name. But he, it seems that he'd married another woman as part of a peace treaty. There was another kingdom to the east and, uh, and, and slightly to the south who the Jews had been at odds with uh, for many years. And so Herod had married the daughter of the king, the, the nearby king called Aretas. He also appears in the book of Acts in the story about Paul. But this king Aretas... Herod marries his daughter to join their kingdoms together and, and create peace. We, we don't really know what happens, but much later, Herod falls in love with Herodias, who happens to be his brother's wife already. Maybe as he grew into his reign, he became more confident and less afraid of his enemies next door. Maybe he felt he could handle them. Or maybe he just thought, I can marry who I want and not who I have been arranged to be married to. So in this moment, Herod manages to antagonise his Jewish subjects by committing adultery and incest. But at the same time, he now has his former father-in-law, King Aretas, knocking on his door, wanting to go to war with him for disgracing his daughter. Herod faces a religious uprising at home and armies marching on him from abroad. And in this moment, the last thing Herod needs is John the Baptist constantly banging on about his private life. And ordinary people flocking to hear John in the desert. John is fearless. How can Herod be the king of the Jews. This is John's message. Those who are in power are not above the good laws that apply to everyone else. This, this is true in our world, isn't it? Often people in power think they're above the law. John's like, it doesn't work like that. And John's message was repent. There's a better king coming. When we compare Matthew's gospel with Mark's gospel, it's hard to work out whether it was Herod or his new wife, Herodias, who hated John the most. Matthew tells us here that Herod wanted to kill John in verse 5. But when it came to the crunch, it, it seems that he was distressed and hesitant about actually pulling the trigger or giving him the chop. <laughs> In Mark's gospel, Herod, we're told that Herodias was the one who hated John and that Herod actually put John in prison both to keep him quiet and to protect him from his wife. It's a messy story. Maybe Herod was just more politically astute. 
you do get the sense that Herodias despised John and that she's been patiently and wickedly biding her time until this perfect opportunity presents itself to her on a plate, so to speak. And so we come to verse 6. And this sordid account of Herod's drunken birthday party. In Mark's Gospel, we're told that all the people who mattered were there, high-ranking officials, army officials, everyone who had, had influence was invited to this party. The passage is written quite discreetly rather than gratuitously. But you don't need much imagination to see it as a drunken, wild night. At some point during the evening, Herod's new wife, Herodias' daughter, dances for the guests. And the incestuous and lustful Herod makes rash promises to give her whatever she wants. She goes and asks her mother, Herodias, who sees her opportunity... And tells the daughter, tell him to give you John the Baptist's head on a platter. And although distressed, Herod orders the execution with not even a hint of a proper trial. So as not to lose face in front of his birthday guests. What one writer says this, like most weak men, the thing that Herod feared the most was to be thought of as weak. Like most weak men, the thing he feared the most was to be thought of as weak. Here is a human king driven by power and lust and a heady cocktail of drink and cowardice. Herod was guided by reckless pleasure rather than careful thoughtfulness. He cared more about his own image than he did for justice. And then in the end, he's played with a superstitious, guilty conscience. You get the sense, don't you, that although we all should rightly expect a king to pursue justice... And to use his power and authority for everyone's good. But Herod is the kind of king who seems at the mercy of events. And he seems overtaken by the influence of others. Isn't it amazing that the most powerful rulers are often the ones who are the most easily led? And Herod himself kind of makes the comparison with Jesus himself when Matthew tells us at the beginning that Herod says, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But it seems that a different and darker power is at work in Herod. Friends, I I think... First of all, there's a challenge here in this story for us to be careful, isn't there, about our own hearts. The seemingly small weaknesses that can lurk secretly in the shadows. 
if we allow them to grow unchecked, they can develop into bigger sins that in a rash moment could overwhelm us and destroy those close to us. But I think Matthew here is surely highlighting something something else in this grisly narrative. A better king is coming. Don't we need that? This tragic, brutal world is not the end of the story. There is a different and mighty king who is righteous and just and fair, strong enough to deal with the wicked and kind enough to protect the vulnerable. John's mission was to prepare people for Jesus, the true king, and he ends up being murdered by a human king who is the total opposite. Secondly, I want to suggest, as we think about Jesus and John the Baptist, that Jesus is so much more than an innocent martyr. We've seen already how Matthew uses the story of John, the death of John, to foreshadow the death of Jesus. But John's death still raises the question, why did the God who sent John not protect him? How is it that this great prophet of God ends up with his head on a drunken king's dessert platter? It's just wrong. But that leads us to ask as well, if Jesus is the son of God, what on earth is going on as he knowingly heads towards the cross to be killed by his enemies? If Jesus is who he claimed to be, he could have smashed his enemies to smithereens, couldn't he? What Matthew intends us to see is that despite the brutality of a wicked king and an unbelieving world, the true God is working out his plans, his loving purposes, in a totally different way to the way the world operates. In the Gospels here, we see something of the serene and masterful composure of Jesus. Jesus is not at the mercy of events. He's in control of everything that happens to him. And although in one sense he is surely the victim of the greatest ever injustice, in another sense he's also going to the cross willingly in sacrificial love. Jesus goes to the cross not as a martyr, but to take the consequences of human sin on his own shoulders. Jesus doesn't die as an unfortunate martyr, but as a heroic saviour. Jesus dies bearing our shame, our sins, the punishment that we deserve. Jesus' death wasn't a tragic accident, but perfectly planned to purchase the forgiveness 
for sinners like you and I. I do wonder if there is even a hint of irony deliberately in Matthew's description of Herod thinking that John had risen from the dead. This is John the Baptist, lads. He's risen from the dead. We know, of course, that Herod was wrong in his superstition. But isn't it interesting that he still seems to hint somehow at what is yet to come? Jesus did not do miracles because he was a resurrected John. His miracles, by his own power, were a foretaste of the resurrection that's still to happen. Jesus powerfully rises from the dead because he is the true saviour, the true king, greater than Herod, greater even than Caesar, greater even than John. Well, we've been asking, why does Matthew include this gruesome passage in the middle of his gospel? And I hope we've been able to see that this passage is not a filler. It's not an irrelevant sidebar or a loose moment in the narrative because Matthew couldn't think of something else to say. This tragic episode points us to the true meaning of the whole gospel and of Jesus' life. Herod's wickedness contrasts with the goodness of Jesus. And John's execution even points us to the greater salvation bringing death. And resurrection of Jesus. In describing John's tragic death, Matthew is truthfully highlighting the brutality of an unjust world where tragic things do happen. Perhaps especially to those who have the courage to challenge this world's ungodly leaders and and where human power is so often used twisted and misused to abuse the innocent but ultimately Matthew is pointing us to the victorious goodness of Jesus the true king who never uses his power to exploit the vulnerable the true king who overcame this brutal world, who conquered human sin, who defeated our death, and by his resurrection powerfully begins a new creation that is filled with love and hope rather than death and despair. Matthew is comforting us with the truth that although evil is truly terrible, It will not have the last word. Despite the darkness in the world, despite our own sin, God is lovingly working his purposes out to save sinners and to recreate a new and everlasting kingdom through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Just think about this uh, for a moment. Who would you say comes best out of this story 
John the Baptist or Herod? The powerful ruler or the beheaded prophet? Matthew reminds us that our physical death is not actually our worst enemy. It is a far worse fate to be alienated from God. And in that sense, Herod is a far more pitiable character than John. Because of Jesus, the true king, the one who was murdered still truly lives, while those who murdered him are in reality the ones who are dead. The great reversal of the true king who was crucified creates another great reversal of a faithful martyr being eternally glorified. And through this passage, we're brought back to Matthew's purpose as a whole in challenging all of us to think about what our own response to Jesus will be. Who is he? What will you do with Jesus? I do love the fact that in verse 12, in the face of John's tragic death, John the Baptist's own friends have literally nowhere else to go. So what do they do? They go to Jesus. And I want to say to you this afternoon that such going to Jesus is always a good thing to do. He is big enough and kind enough to handle our tears, our anger, and even our sins. Because he himself is the true king. Let's bow for a moment, shall we, and pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the realism that we find in your word. We thank you that it so powerfully describes the way the world is, always has been. But Father, we thank you for the depiction that we see in your word of your wonderful Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you turn our hearts to him? Would you help us like John's friends to go to him? We thank you that you never trivialise our tears, our pain, the suffering that we experience as we live in this world but we thank you that you have given us hope because there is a better king we thank you that Jesus died and rose again conquering this world and bringing living hope into existence help us 
to respond to him by giving ourselves to him, we pray. And we pray in his good and kind and powerful name. Amen.